Hey guys, this is Peter. I wanted to remind listeners about the upcoming Bitcoin 2020 conference. It's being held in San Francisco on March 27th and 28th of next year, and announced speakers already include Tony Hawk and Nick Zabo. Plus, there's going to be a lightning arcade and an art gallery with uh, Bitcoin-inspired art, plus a ton more still to be announced. To learn more and get your tickets, visit Bitcoin2020.com. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Weekly Bits, the podcast where Bitcoin Magazine's staff breaks down and analyzes the biggest stories getting published on our website. Today I'm joined by Cassie Clifton, host of the What's Happening podcast, sometimes contributor to Bitcoin Magazine and all-around Bitcoin mining aficionado. Thanks for joining me today, Cassie. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, While I have you here in the studio for this episode, I wanted to ask about Bitcoin Magazine's latest cover story. Uh, For listeners who haven't seen it yet, it was written by Jesse Wilms, and the headline is Bitcoin Mining in North America, a New Gold Rush in the New World. Uh, It provides a really detailed and insightful look into some of the Bitcoin mining operations opening up in North America or planning to do so, and explores the kind of various motivations for these new operations. Um, So, Cassie, to just jump into it, I personally was really surprised uh, to see this many major Bitcoin mining operations opening up or preparing to open up in the U.S. and Canada. But as someone who watches the space, you know, more closely than I do, I was wondering if you felt that same kind of like surprise or is this kind of like a well-known trend? Um, Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, In some cases, I would say a little bit of both. Um, Largely not too surprised. I would say mostly surprised at the fact of like how quickly some of these operations are opening up um, and how many that there are opening up. Uh, For the most part, though, I think like Bitcoin mining has long been something that's been gaining traction, right? And I think that for the most part, people tend to be more comfortable operating in environments that they're already familiar with, right? So uh, people who might have the background in the contracting or subcontracting and supply chain within the United States probably don't feel as comfortable going into somewhere in Asia to set up those operations. So in that sense, it makes a lot of sense for them to like set up shop in their own backyard. Um, Bitmain was a little bit more surprising for me. Uh, I think the overall trend of them moving here and getting a little bit more like geopolitical, uh, like more of a geopolitical hedge against the uncertainty in China definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, I didn't realize like how quickly that they'd be setting up shop. I knew I had heard that they'd been looking around, but um, I think it's kind of, it's pretty exciting to see that they've, uh, that they've come here. So like all the things that would go into um, how quickly you could open up an operation. I mean, on some level, as you sort of said, if it's your own backyard, there'd be kind of a, it wouldn't be too difficult to to start setting up. But for Bitmain to do so, I think like their logistical challenges are probably a little bit harder. That being said, I know they probably have a ton of resources to kind of throw yeah, at, at they're, launching. They're definitely uh, leveraging a lot of their relationships here in the U.S. to help them get started, I'm sure. But then you've got like the Steve Barbers. Um, right. He was had an oil and gas background before he uh, started using like going onto onto uh, oil and gas sites and taking that excess gas produced in the flaring process and using that for mining. But then again, like the whole mining part is still very new to him. You've got like Gideon, who's um, over at Hoddle Ranch in Texas, oil and gas background. So that transition also made a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And that kind of leads me into the next question I wanted to ask. So, you know, reading through the article, I was not too surprised to see that a main motivation behind a lot of the new operations, uh, they're setting up places where they can 
find renewable energy sources or cooler climates, places with hydroelectric power. But then, as you say, there's, especially here in the U.S., there's kind of this oil and gas angle that maybe isn't as prevalent in other parts of the world. Yeah, I would say, I mean, obviously oil and gas is very specific to the like geographic territory that you're dealing with. Um, China, at least per my knowledge, is not super big on oil and gas uh, like exploration and and having that being like one of their uh, larger natural resources. So obviously, like they've turned more so to coal, um, although they are like really ramping up renewable uh, sources of power in the next decade or so, um, which is really exciting. But I mean, overall, I would differentiate in a a couple of areas. Um, I think reliable uh, sources of energy are are probably first and foremost the most important. Um, Going to places like Africa is a little bit daunting, knowing that like the lack of grid and and power stability there um, is just something that you won't get in comparison to the U.S. or China. Um, But then you also have to think about, like you mentioned, the cost of power. Um, So it's really interesting to think about like in the U.S., there are some places in the U.S. like Washington, for example, when you get below five cents, you're below about you're like operating at the bottom 10% of the cost of power in the world, um, which is really, really wild to think about. Um, so when you can get using also renewable resources, you can drive that cost of power down even more, that cost of electricity down even more to let's say like sub two cents per kilowatt hour, or even like four cents per kilowatt hour is really outstanding. Um, you're seeing the largest uh, variable costs in your operation at large uh, diminish significantly. So that's going to make sure that they can stay online during the, the next happening. In the last happening, we saw about a third of the miners go offline. So making sure that you have a low cost of power is really, really important to stay online in the next one. And you're saying that kind of level of cost is achievable in like Washington State, for yeah. instance? In Washington State, um, in some parts in Canada, definitely in Texas. It all depends on how you've set up your operation, um, whether or not you have a power purchase agreement or whether or not you're like building your own substations out and uh, and not having to go through the power the power company. Uh, so I think in addition to power, um, reliability, and costs, the other kind of big factor for these operations would be the regulatory climate. You don't want to invest a lot, set up shop somewhere, and then you know have problems with potential regulators. Uh, what do you make of kind of that climate in the North America and Canada and the U.S.? Yeah. Overall, I would say the U.S. is very unclear. Um, I think there's maybe one city in New York that has uh, like forbid uh, mining operations from existing. Um, aside from that, there really hasn't been any clarity afforded to us. Uh, so in that sense, people are, are kind of just operating on their own um, and hoping for the best. Um, but in Canada's sense, there definitely has been. I mean, and so uh, I did a little research because I wanted to make sure I had the dates right. So March 2018, they basically said, they're not interested in providing cheap electricity to crypto miners unless they're doing something in return. So they want them to generate some sort of economic value for the country at large, which makes a lot of sense. So then in May 2018, they lifted the ban on the sale of power to crypto miners um, because they thought that they might be positioning themselves to miss the boat on crypto at large. Um, but what they said was they're now going to grade all of the mining facilities that are applying for power on four criteria, which is basically like the number of jobs that they're creating the payroll of direct jobs, um, the value of their investments, and like heat recovery. So I think it's interesting to see like heat recovery. Maybe you're seeing, I think the the uh, what they stipulated was like 10% heat recovery of the as a percentage of the total cost of or total consumption of electricity. Um, so maybe you're seeing like a cannabis operation alongside it. So it's like generating economic value in other ways, um, which I think is a really important lesson that we can all kind of take away from that. Like especially in the U.S., where 
there hasn't been a lot of clarity and there's a lot of misunderstanding around crypto mining, if we can find ways to contribute to like the economic value at large of the country, I think that we're in a much better position uh, for favorable legislation. Yeah, and this is something that we write about a ton at Bitcoin Magazine. I talk about on the show with a lot of guests, like um, sort of the it's not that Bitcoin mining has oppressive regulations against it in certain places. It's just that there's this lack of clarity. And that's true, like across the Bitcoin space. Lots of Bitcoin service providers feel like, um, you know, they just want some more information about how things because it's scary to operate without knowing like which direction regulars are going to go. It seems like based on your answer there, Canada set themselves up really well to, you know, not only invite a lot of um, Bitcoin mining operations, which are taking them up on the offer, you know, as this article reports, but then kind of like leveraging that, that uh, regulatory climate to have Bitcoin mining kind of like work well for the operators and like work well for, the citizens of that country at large. Exactly. Especially in a country like Canada, where there is such a large, uh, like renewables penetration in that country. But that also means that there's a lot of stranded energy and a lot of energy that's not being used. So rather than just allowing that energy to sit there and go unutilized, it does make a lot of sense to have another industry player come in that is able to provide economic value in that sense and utilize that energy and, and wants to pay for it. I think it's just an awesome, I mean, this is my personal opinion now, but I just think that's a great example of like, that makes me pretty excited for the space to see that sort of example set. And, you know, I would encourage other regulators to think about it that way. Like, like it's, I'm not, I don't think Bitcoiners are saying like carte blanche, we don't want any rules at all. I think they want clarity and um, for regulators to seem like they understand you know, what Bitcoiners and Bitcoin operations are doing and how that can kind of, you know, help everybody. I suppose. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with that point. Um, definitely want some clarity there. And that's evidenced by, um, you know, the, the, the handful of Bitcoiners that have sat in on some congressional and, and Senate hearings. Um, and, and personally, it's a little bit, uh, it can be cringeworthy watching some of the questions. But I mean, it does go to show how, uh, like what sort of lack of education we're dealing with. Um, so, and I guess that's the first step in the process. Maybe you know mm-hmm. we have to ask some kind of goofy questions. Yeah, like absolutely. It, this is definitely one of those scenarios where like no question can be a dumb question because right. it is such a confusing space if you uh, you're not hands on with it. Uh, so I think the uh, the kind of the elephant in the room. It might probably directly mentioned a couple times in the article, but anytime we write about Bitcoin mining. A big factor is China. And I say that because the main Bitcoin mining manufacturing companies are set up there and the bulk, I'm, I think it's still the bulk of Bitcoin mining is conducted in China. Um, so the reason that this article is even interesting for us to publish is like, hey, look, here's an area that's not China where Bitcoin mining operations are uh, establishing themselves. Um, so kind of in that context, what do you think about the decentralization of mining operations? I don't think North America is that close to like eclipsing or really even being that super competitive with China. But if this was a trend that was going to continue, what would that kind of mean for Bitcoin mining at large? Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that you like hit the nail on the head there. And that's why um, I was really such a fan of this article that Jesse wrote. Like you can't think about Bitcoin mining and not almost immediately think about China afterwards. Um, so like when you think about decentralization, super important. Um, I mentioned the fact that I was excited that Bitmain was moving to the US. I think there's mixed feelings there. Um, but personally, I think it's really great to see legacy institutions like identifying other uh, like some of the lowest 
uh, sources of power, lowest cost sources of power um, globally, and then like doubling down and going into that territory um, and, and starting a new operation. I think that'll be really important for as a hedge against like geopolitical risks for Bitcoin at large. Um, Could but, you elaborate on that a little bit just for maybe more um, I don't know, less ensconced listeners who might not understand why it would be concerning for all Bitcoin mining to take place in one country or another? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say specifically because like we, it is a, a communist nation and um, there has been a lot more, uh, let's say, like pro blockchain legislation, but not necessarily pro Bitcoin legislation ongoing. Um, but they have kind of, they're a country that can change their stance um, almost immediately on uh, like varying technologies and whatnot and how that's going to impact the overall uh, like ability of the Communist Party to maintain uh, political authority within the country. Um, Bitcoin certainly poses a threat to that. And so I think it's important to understand that both from Bitcoin posing a threat to the the People's Republic of China um, and their maintaining authority over the country, like even just recently you saw that uh, China said we're going to test um, the abolish- abolishment of cash transactions so that they're only going to be digital transactions via like credit card or Alipay or WeChat um, so that they're able to see uh, into the spending habits of the consumer. And if you can control the spending habits of your population, like I think there's really no greater way to control a country than controlling their spending habits and, and how they're spending their money. Um, so even that at large speaks volumes in terms of how they might feel about Bitcoin in the in the near future. Um, so with that as a risk and thinking about having a central uh, country and that being the country in particular, China, within which these mining operations are located and Bitcoin is mined, I think poses a huge threat to Bitcoin at large and, and its survival. Uh, so what do you think of this trend of Bitcoin mining decentralization? If we were going to you know, write the next cover story, where would you guess we might be reporting that you know, mining operations are, are popping up? Or would, you maybe, would maybe the next article be like, uh, the operations didn't really expand that much in North America as we thought they would? Yeah, um, I think that they are expanding significantly. I think obviously for there to be like true decentralization, it's going to take a couple of things. Obviously, like cheap power is going to be one of the the bottom factors that people are are um, trying to attain, and as they're like searching for their new like location for the operation. Um, but I also think like advancements in technology are going to be really important. So right now, the majority of facilities um, are air cooled, or maybe like in Siberia, you just kind of open a window and that's like enough, right, with the fans inside. But with evaporative cooling and immersion cooling technology, those will be really important in like the more hot and humid climates. Um, so let's say like South America, for example, assuming that there's a country in particular with a lower power rate, some high, like maybe some hydro or uh, solar, um, so that renewables to drive down the cost of electricity. And you know that like it's going to be stable in terms of the the government and uh, also like the grid and, and the source of power itself. Um, so I think that will open a lot of doors just thinking about advancements in technology. Um, but I also think that less thought of in terms of decentralization is on the manufacturing level. Obviously noted with some of like the, the, the current trade war that we're in with China, that import fee has been driven up significantly into the U.S. Um, in terms of importing those, uh, those machines. So we've seen Bitmain, for example, move into, uh, I believe it's Malaysia. Uh, What's Miner is looking at Thailand. Um, but I think like we need a manufacturer that's located 
outside of Asia, potentially one in North America will be really important. A little difficult to think about in terms of lowering your op- like your production costs, right? And assuming, I know that NAFTA is somewhat in flux now, uh, but something that I would say hasn't really been explored would be a maquiladora, like on the Texas-Mexico border, um, where you have basically zero import and export fees between the countries just during the manufacturing process and assembly process. And then you also are able to utilize a lower cost of labor in Mexico. Uh, so I think that that could be an option potentially for a manufacturing site in the uh, in North America. That's so cool. I think like one of my favorite things about mining, and this is definitely from a layman's perspective compared to like the expertise Cassie is bringing, is that it's technically a super complicated process. But if you even dive into just the layers of sort of the geopolitical layers, the cultural layers of mining, the idea that if you mine, then you're really participating in the Bitcoin network. Like there's just so many layers. We write about it a ton and like we haven't even scratch the surface, I feel like. Um, So anyone who hasn't checked out this cover story, I really encourage you to do so. I think Cassie and I could talk about mining for hours, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, Unless, Cassie, there's anything else about this article you wanted to share that that I didn't ask about? Um, Not off the top of my head. I think that Jesse did a really great job. Um, And there's links to a bunch of different companies that you can uh, can check out that are some of the the major um, operations within the within North America, um, but really, really important to think about as we start to see this decentralization trend and, and what it could mean for the U.S. Um, but that being said, like there are so many areas that we are lacking in expertise across the space, whether it be um, like foreign commerce and trade. Um, so much of that is just unknown, like ways to get around trade laws um, on the technology side, like bringing in some like uh, legacy experts on the engineering side for for cooling of the technology for uh, like ways to retrofit it so that it, it like you can you have a higher density within the facility itself. Um, but there are so many different things that that we need to be looking at. But it's it's so difficult to do when you're just getting started and opening shop, um, or even if you've been around for a year, like you're trying to make money. And so taking measures that are you know require money for R and D, that's really difficult. So. I'm I'm hopeful that some of the legacy institutions will be uh, pushing forward on on the R and D side. Yeah, and like a lot in Bitcoin, there is kind of like um, a legacy level of providers, but even they're kind of in the you know early history probably of what they're going to grow into, and there's so much room for for new players to come out. So, um, like I said, we write about it a lot. I think there's t- always going to be a ton more to report, and just a really interesting space. Um, so anyway, thanks again so much for joining me, Cassie. Uh, could you remind people where they can find you and, and see more of your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my personal Twitter account is at Bitcoin Cass. Um, and then if you're interested in a podcast that's focused only on mining content and related to energy and, and whatnot, um, then you can check out at What's Happening, which is my uh, my official mining podcast for Bitcoin Magazine. The Bitcoin Magazine Weekly Bits podcast is a BTC Media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Thanks again to my guest, Cassie Clifton. Her podcast, What's Happening, comes out every Tuesday, and you can find it on iTunes or Spotify. This episode was produced and edited by Graham Peterson and David Hollerith. If you're interested in reading the story we discussed or others like it, check out our homepage at BitcoinMagazine.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine keep up with all the latest. 
You can find more engaging podcasts over at letstalkbitcoin.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at the LTB Network for all the latest episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoy the show, please take a second to give us a rating and review. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.